0: My guest today is Justin Barrett. And my understanding in the world of cognitive psychology, cognitive science, he's kind of a big deal in that world. Um, He is referenced a lot in papers and books about the field of cognitive science, evolutionary psychology, etc. Today, we're talking about evolutionary psychology in general. And then also, I'm not sure if it's a subset or a related field, but it's called cultural evolution. And it's the idea that... At some point, we kind of stop evolving biologically, at least at a species level. We're not creating new species of ourselves, but we evolve very quickly at a cultural level in terms of the information and the customs and whatnot, values that we pass down from generation to generation. And this is another one of those episodes. We've had a bunch now made possible by Fuller's Star Office, Science, Technology and Religion. I met Justin at that big seminar I went to last July. Uh, but we conducted this interview later via Skype. But I wrote the questions during uh, basically a talk he gave about evolutionary psychology and cultural evolution, and I just found it fascinating. It's really, really interesting stuff. But as we'll talk about, people on the left and the right, for various reasons, have an issue uh, with looking at things this way. And Justin's going to give his thoughts a little bit as to why that would be. So I don't have much more to say except that I think that you'll really enjoy this conversation if you're interested in these fields. Here's my chat with Justin. Justin, I am so glad to finally be talking to you. I was down with you in Pasadena at that Theo Psych conference for two weeks back in July. We are taping this at the end of October because of scheduling. We just didn't get to do it right away, and that's fine. Some of that was on, was on me. I'm going to do my best to remember as much as I can from what <laughs> you taught me while I was there. But this is a long time coming and as a conversation I'm really pumped about, so thank you for doing this. You bet. Looking forward to it. Let's get a little bit about your own faith story and how you describe your faith today, if it's meaningfully different in any way from the way you were raised, et cetera.
1: Okay, yeah, sure. I uh, grew up in a Christian family in California, Southern California. My parents, though, were descended of uh, migrants to California, like so many people, from Oklahoma and Texas. So they actually grew up in the Church of Christ, that sort of Southern fundamentalist kind of denomination. And so I've got some childhood memories of going to Church of Christ, mostly with the grandparents and so forth. We did a little bit in my family. and then, But my parents grew a little uneasy in how conservative that was in some respects. And uh, I like to say they rebelled all the way to Baptist. (laughs) And uh, so I mostly grew up in churches that were various kinds of Baptist churches and non-denominational churches that had formerly been Baptist. So that means people who took the Bible very seriously, high view of Scripture. It was common for us to sort of talk about what's the Bible say and did the pastor really interpret it the right way and so forth. (laughs) That was common sort of family talk. So then growing up, I was a person— you know, really curious about working out my faith and what that meant. I was always a nerd, so I was in my head a lot. I loved the the biological world especially, got into that a lot, and wanted to somehow put those two things together. Through a, a weird series of events, I end up at Calvin College, which is reformed. I didn't know anything about that. In fact, I thought Calvinists were one of those sort of dead ancestral groups like Puritans or something that didn't exist anymore. Oh, Interesting. And then I discover them in Michigan. So a California boy going to school in Michigan. Um, So I learned a lot there, just getting somebody else's perspective on the Christian tradition. And in some ways, it was a breath of fresh air. They never convinced me to be, you know, reformed through and through. But I certainly picked up some theology that I learned to really appreciate. And so I'm kind of a mixed hybrid now of these various backgrounds. I still regard myself as very orthodox, in my beliefs, my Christian beliefs, but I've had to sort of rediscover that orthodoxy through really thinking about things hard, taking philosophy of religion courses, conversations with people of various faith backgrounds and no faith backgrounds, and and trying to make sense of the, the science I was studying while doing it all too. Yeah,
0: I think it's worth noting, and I I, th- I think you'll take this the right way. We're talking about a topic today, evolutionary psychology and specifically cultural evolution, that is the kind of thing that people get nervous about. And we're going to talk a little bit about that in a second. But it's worth noting that, like, you are firmly to my right theologically. What we're talking about today is not like a, a shot across the bow from the far left of Christianity or something. This is science. We're just talking about science. It's not really ideological and I of course don't say that to denigrate in any sort of a way. We had some really interesting conversations down in California, but I think that's worth noting, just so people can understand that that's that's not what's going on here as a left versus right conversation.
1: Thanks. You're right. You're right. Um, I am. I detect to the right of you theologically. I, you know, I'm still praying for you in that regard, and I know you're probably praying for me too. So. <laughs> and
0: really, no, I'm when... meditating on your behalf, Justin. <laughs> oh, thank you. <laughs>
1: Wow uh, no, I feel more efficacious all of a sudden
0: <laughs> no um, i do I do actually pray with words yes i 'm <laughs> I'm t- I'm centrist enough to still pray with words
1: no, but i, I you know and, and to be honest, um, there are aspects of evolutionary psychology that still make me squeamish and nervous i don 't really like being identified as an evolutionary psychologist it 's not how I identify myself. I think of myself as just a psychological scientist who When an evolutionary perspective is useful, then those are the tools we use. And it's taken me a long time, though, to get to that level of comfort. I certainly didn't grow up comfortable with this. Honestly, it wasn't even until, I think, grad school that I started getting at all comfortable with evolutionary psychology. So I completely appreciate if people are like, whoa, okay, hold on. What is this stuff and can we really trust it? I get that.
0: Yeah. So first of all, what is it? And then I, I do want to talk a little bit about that nervousness around it. What is evolutionary psychology, plain and simple?
1: Sure. In a nutshell, so psychology is the study of human thought and behavior, you know, and on the scientific side, that's what it is. It's the science of human thought and behavior. that modifier evolutionary adds in the front of it is to say, well, look, if we're animals that have evolved in some way, then our psychology is at least partly explicable in terms of our history, our species history, and how it characteristically tried to solve problems. So it's bringing insights from evolutionary
0: sciences to the study of human thought and behavior is really what it comes down to. And let's go through each of these a little bit. So it's actually, it's maybe kind of obvious to note To understand why conservative Christians and others are nervous about that. They don't really want evolution to be impacting sort of anything that we think about. I mean, do you want to add anything else to why the right sort of gets worried about this?
1: I mean, it may seem obvious. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I'll tell you, I've got got sympathies for people on the right, because these are my people in some ways. And I understand why they're nervous about this, because I was. And in part, it's I mean, I like to think of it when a dog gets hit with something, you know, rolled up newspaper at a certain point, they, they get nervous around a newspaper. And evolution has been used as a club to beat up people on, on the right. Mm, yeah. um, so I'm not a bit surprised that they wince every time the E word is used. But I think what intellectually it allegedly comes to biblical authority, right? And how do we interpret the Bible in certain ways? It's not really about the science. It's about, well, what do we think about biblical theology? Um at least yeah.
0: that's my take. Yeah. And then the, maybe the more interesting controversy is evolutionary psychology is often under attack from the left, from the mostly sort of the sociopolitical left. My understanding is that people get nervous that it might become a kind of social Darwinism where if you apply the findings of evolutionary psychology or something, something to that effect, like you're actually reducing the value of certain people because of their fitness to survive. Am I getting that wrong?
1: No, you're getting that right. In fact, some of those fears are actually part of the history of why fundamentalists and evangelicals in America are nervous around it, too, because they saw in the early days of when Darwinism was starting to roll out. Well, who were really quick to pick it up? A lot of the eugenics movements of the early 20th century, including in the United States and the UK. And then, of course, Germany takes it really far. And they were big champions of Darwinism. So... Christians rightly, I think, reacted against that and said, wow, it sure looks like there's some intellectual tools here from an evolutionary perspective to then go into this social Darwinism, eugenics, selective abortion, all kinds of stuff that should make us nervous. So I think that is there. It's part of the common heritage. It's commonly associated with racism as well. Right. For similar reasons. Uh, Well, for
0: instance, there are a lot of sort of intellectual or we might call them pseudo intellectual conversations that still go on in fairly respectable areas about like the IQ and race. And oftentimes those conversations are happening sort of without the caveat that IQ can change. There's a way to have that conversation where you assume that IQ is fixed as soon as you're born. And then you say, look, this people of this race have a lower IQ and pretty soon you're in some pretty uh, scary waters, unless you also in, you know introduce the fact that they've shown that like nutrition raises IQ in studies around, of children and stuff like that. So I think that that's, it's similar to that, right? There's, there's kind of worries around that kind of movement.
1: There are. And I, I like how you described it as sort of pseudo-intellectualist, because there are thoughtful people who don't have the full picture, and they start drawing inferences without really having the full picture. Recently, there are articles that, you know, I'm bumping into online that are also playing it sort of this way. Well, one article, for instance, that I've came across, uh, it's about why Jeffrey Epstein loved evolutionary psychology. Uh, Uh, Yeah, right. (laughs) Right. And as if evolutionary psychology gives cover for really being a sexual creep, because a lot of evolutionary psychology, at least the stuff that it's commonly talked about, because it's kind of fun to talk about. Let's be honest. Sex sells. Yeah. Sex has been A lot used of to about sell sex, yeah. psychology. Yeah. A lot of it seems like that's what it's, and of course it is, because if we're really sort of reproductive fitness machines, right. then we got to make babies or we don't survive. So, okay, right. how do we go about making babies? And then you very quickly discover, well, it looks like men and women are different in this regard. And for very good reasons, just like Males and females of other species are very asymmetrical in this regard.
0: Yeah. What this sort of makes me think of is like, for instance, Sex at Dawn. I don't remember the author's name, but that's like a really popular level and very popular book about sort of early human sexuality comparing homo sapiens to other ape species and measuring testicle size and like how promiscuous are they and and all of this stuff, right? So you can do science about that. That's interesting. That might tell you something. What we're doing today, though, eventually, by the end of this conversation, we're not stopping at just that. We're also going to ask basically values and theological questions of, well, where do we put that basically in our story about God and humanity? So it might be true that human beings have sexual drives and testicle size that puts them sort of in the middle of the ape continuum. In one sense, who cares? Like, we obviously can sleep around a lot and we also are able to not sleep around a lot. So we seem to have both capacities. And then the moral question, it might be informed by it. It should be informed by it in terms of we should not too hastily judge people for urges they have no control over. But it's not the end of the picture. We still have to ask the moral question, ask the theological question.
1: That's right. And one of the things that we really ought to sort of clear out of the way when we're talking about any of these science areas, but maybe especially evolutionary psychology is, well, there are a handful of fallacies that are really easy to fall into here. And we see people do it over and over again. So one of those is the naturalistic fallacy, as it's known. Right. So just because something is the case. And looks like it's naturally the case doesn't mean it ought to be that way. So we have to put that one out there right away.
0: Yeah, there is ought fallacy. I mean, it is true that most large mammals are carnivores and like have no concern for the animals that they kill and eat. Ought humans act that way? That's a different question. It's like, a different question. Just because that's what tigers do or, you know, or great apes or whatever, which actually I don't know if great apes do. Should we do that, right? That's that's a different question.
1: That's right. So there's the is-ought fallacy. There's the genetic fallacy. And this doesn't mean about genes. It means where does an idea come from? And so just because an idea comes from a creep doesn't mean the idea is wrong. So that one we have to be careful about just because – you mentioned IQ earlier – just because intelligence testing actually – Yeah, it's got a dubious history. It really probably started to try to filter out certain types of immigrants from coming into the United States was one of its roles. Well, that's a dubious past, but that doesn't mean that all by itself intelligence testing is a bad thing.
0: Exactly, right.
1: And we're also seeing these days something of this – It's – well, it's a version of the ad hominem kind of fallacy. So ad hominem is playing the person again. So I'm a creep. So you don't want anything associated with me you don't want. But it's spread into this weird kind of guilty by association thing. Maybe you remember Steve Taylor's song back in the day, you know, the Christian performer, Steve Taylor. I know I know who
0: he is, but I don't know any of his songs. He had songs.
1: this song, Guilty by Association. And back in the 80s, he was picking on this sort of conservative Christian tendency to say, hey, you should only uh, buy things from Christian organizations and you should only listen to sort of sacred music because somehow you'll get tainted if you're affiliated. Well, we're seeing it actually from – the left, the political left in America yeah, now, in some yeah. ways too. If you're associated with this kind of thing, then anything you say is ridiculous and wrong. Like, well, hold on, that doesn't follow at all. It might be yeah. that you shouldn't invite me to your Christmas parties, but it doesn't mean I'm wrong. It, may mean, it just mean I'm gross.
0: Yeah, I, I talked about <laughs> this a fair amount on my old podcast, Depolarized, but you know, it, it's basically it's it's pulling on the purity and disgust modules there in you our go. psychology. I think that's right. For conservatives, a lot of that stuff ends up being bodily and sort of visceral, you know, oh, gay sex is gross kind of a thing. And for but for liberals, it's like racism. So if I am anyway tainted by someone who's racist, that's gross and visceral. And my gag reflex and and that's just it's just a module. It's just something that we have in our brain. And we have to be careful that we are not following our psychological urges too unthinkingly on either side of the spectrum. That's right. So in the
1: case of evolutionary psychology, then I think what we want to really be careful of when we're starting to deal with well, what's it finding is don't assume that because it's finding certain things, then automatically these are good things or bad things. Yeah. Or start uh, – if we don't like a finding, start trying to figure out, well, well, who's behind all of this? I mean that's right. just the wrong way to go. What's the evidence is what we should be asking, like with any other science.
0: Yeah. I two things about that and then we'll, we'll get into this actual – Scientific work here. One is that that's really a good mode of thought for all science. Because science is always giving us confidence and truth at varying levels, always open to change, further investigation, further evidence. We should always be patient with the findings of science and never jump too hastily to anything, either positive or negative. Yeah, that's um, that's right. Until the evidence is just so overwhelming that it's as good as knowledge. But that takes a long time to happen with most scientific theories. And then the other thing is that, and this is something that I have been noticing in myself increasingly, is that I have always been hesitant to do this, but I think we ought to do it all the time, which is when we have a reaction like that, fear or, oh, is there something sinister going on or whatever, look inward first. Like, if I could learn the reflex of looking at myself, where is this fear coming from? Why am I anxious? What do I think will happen to me if this is true? What do I think it says about my community or my loved ones? Can I sit with that discomfort, or do I need to diffuse it immediately so that I can go back on my way, you know, happily or whatever? I think that's the other thing that came to mind for me. Preach, preach it. Okay, so <laughs> let's get into it. So, what we're talking about evolution psychology, but we're we're talking today about a, a subset of it, which is called cultural evolution. You gave a talk on this at Fuller and I loved it and immediately wanted to, to pick your brain on this topic. So can you distinguish for us cultural evolution as a subset, if that's what it is, of evolutionary psychology?
1: Sure, yeah. So this label, cultural evolution, is trying to capture, as far as I can tell, it's capturing at least three kind of overlapping sets of Of enterprises here of inquiry. So one is, is, what's the evolutionary process by which humans have acquired the capacities to be cultural animals? So what is it about us psychologically? What is it about us biologically? How do our brains work? Whatever it is that has made us into cultural animals like no
0: other animal. And just define culture real quick.
1: Yeah. In this case, it means it's referring to Behaviors are traits that are usually socially acquired, so acquired from other people, that can vary between groups and then pile up and change over time, okay? In that sense, there's something cumulative about them. It's not something that just is part of human thought or action by virtue of just growing up human in any human
0: environment. It's not the same as like our kitten, who's a year old, just hunts. She hunts our feet in the covers. She hunts around the house. like She just will do that by virtue of being a kitten. And every kitten, unless something really changes, will always do that. We're not talking about these sort of basic species-level reflexive actions, right? We're talking about accumulative knowledge and and, uh, aesthetics and all this stuff.
1: Yeah, that's right. That's right. So to be a truly cultural animal, I need to be able to learn from – other individuals, and probably do something innovative with that, at least potentially, and build up something new and different. So you show me uh, how to, you know, if we're a couple of, of chimpanzees lurking around, you know, and you show me how to... Oh, you're, you're fishing with termites, a termite stick. It's not just that I can copy you, but that you can teach me and I can learn from you in a more interactive kind of way. We see shades of this in other species, but no other species does, is remotely invested in the kind of teaching, the ratcheting up of others' learning that humans are.
0: Yeah, but we could just compare that real quick. So chimpanzees today are still using termite sticks to, to hunt, right? And human beings, uh, around the time of our genesis, we were making flint tools with stones and sort of like making sharp things. Now – we are building warheads and we have speed boats with multiple rods in the water for our fishing, you know? So it's like we have like, they're still the same. We have progressed. One way of describing the difference is we have cultural evolution and they don't.
1: That's one way to describe it. So this area of cultural evolution is interested in, then what are those uh, psychological or cognitive kinds of capacities that humans have and how did they evolve? Then second, what does that do once they're in place? How does that change the selection dynamics on our species? You put that nicely. So we, you know, it's commonly said our last common ancestor with, say, chimpanzees was probably six million years ago. Well, a lot has happened in that time. One of the big things that's happened, maybe especially in the last, it's hard to say, 300,000 years, 200,000 years, is we become so deeply cultural, that there appears to be this sort of runaway selection pressure on us to be even better at being cultural. So Mm -hmm. we start to become a species that's dependent on social learning from each other, and then that provides a little bit of selection pressure for us to get better at social learning.
0: Right, because the organisms that are better at social learning, they can pile up cultural information quicker, and therefore they're more likely to out-survive the ones who aren't as good. And that would be a a reason to have a bigger brain, for instance.
1: That would be a reason to have a bigger brain. It would be a a reason to engage in teaching, actually, and not just teaching your own kids.
0: Sociality. Yes. Group social dynamics, right? Yeah.
1: Group social dynamics. One of the traits of humans that makes this possible is our, we sometimes say our domesticity or or our docility. We're actually, for a large mammal that is predatory – we're pretty chill. I mean, you might not realize that when you read headlines every day, but when it comes right down to it, most of us day in and day out manage to avoid engaging in any kind of violence with anybody else. <laughs> and right. that's with complete strangers, sometimes those that we're competing against. And you just don't see this in other animals. Right. Um, we're really very mellow. We've seemed to have domesticated ourselves. And what does that help? Well, it helps us to teach and learn from each other. For me to learn from you, I have to be willing to, you know, hang out with you and not beat you up, and vice versa.
0: Yeah. Uh, <laughs> like not to hopefully I'm not cart horsing it here, but it makes me think of Robert Bella, the late sociologist of religion. His theory about the evolution of religion is that basically much of what we would consider today religious ritual, rhythmic singing, rhythmic movement in a group together chanting, vocal sounds, whether that's with music or or just sounds, that all predates language as we use it today. And if you could put yourself back in that moment where there's not quite language yet as we have it, but there is vocality and musicality, the groups of early humans or proto-humans that can get in a, a circle chant together, dance together, feel that collective effervescence that we still feel today in church and at concerts and whatever, at a Bernie rally, whatever does it for you. (laughs) Uh, If you could do that and you're more likely to cooperate with that group than if you're the kind of guy who can't get into it and has to go do his own thing and just come up with as good of ideas as he can by himself or maybe with his mate, his partner or whatever, that group that can do that is going to perform better if we are the kind of beings that increasing brain size is leading to this cultural evolution aspect.
1: Yeah, I think that's that's good. And you're right, you are sort of anticipating where some of this is headed. But it's definitely the case. There's There's a reason to think that, say chimpanzees, again, they're handy for comparison purposes. I mean, they do cooperate in some really interesting little ways. Not You know, quite as grand as uh, initial reports suggested, but they seem to cooperate, particularly with those that that they've been social grooming. It's called, you know, and social grooming is kind of funny. It's in chimpanzees. It's usually picking nits off of each other and other Mm. kinds of stuff. But what social grooming appears to do is release oxytocin and endorphins, which are bonding hormones and chemicals and make us sort of feel a degree of trust. So chimpanzees who have been picking nits off of each other are more cooperative and more tolerant of each other. I mean cooperation sometimes here just means things like, I'll let you steal some of my food. Yeah. Uh, Which is kind of weird from a human perspective, but you know, it's got to start somewhere. Yeah. But you've just pointed to lots of other mechanisms humans have that it doesn't look like other species have. For actually releasing the same kinds of bonding hormones, oxytocin and endorphins of various sorts, that make us just feel one with each other and builds up a sense of we that maybe chimpanzees don't have. And we can do it in much bigger groups. Synchronized activity is one of those things that experiments have shown make us sort of gel with each other. Rhythmic activity, laughing together. And it's possible that singing and, of course, dancing is taking advantage of those kinds of artistic expressions are taking advantage of these same kinds of mechanisms. And those are ways we can socially groom really big groups all at the same time. And we're all in this together. And yes, you're right. Bella and others have called this sort of collective effervescence. And it may be one of the reasons why these kinds of activities have evolved in human groups. That's an example of that third type of cultural evolution that I was talking about. So the first was, what are the mechanisms by which we're cultural animals? How did they evolve? Second is, once we're in a cultural environment, what does that do to the selective pressures on our species? How does that change who we are? And the third kind of area is, how do cultural forms evolve? So how do they Mm. sort of, you might think then of, well, how did dance evolve? How did music evolve? How does it continue to evolve? And you can see that all three of these areas kind of overlap and inform each other.
0: Yeah. One thing we're kind of dancing around is just how different are homo sapiens from other, you know, our closest related species in the animal world?
1: Well, it depends on which dimension you want to compare, right? And it depends where, you know, where you're coming from. They're real obvious differences. You pointed out some of them. Chimpanzees, you know, are fishing with termite sticks. That's their big tool invention. And, you know, you and I are talking over... All this digital stuff that a chimpanzee couldn't even conceptualize. Heck, most – actually, we can't conceptualize probably. I don't
0: really understand what's going uh, on yeah, with but Skype.
1: But here we are. So there are big differences there. But if you think, OK, well, what are more – not quite so dramatic, but what are a what little closer things that seem to be interesting? Well, We've heard about our opposable thumbs, for instance, and we do have pretty cool thumbs. Other animals have opposable thumbs, but ours are particularly strong. If you've ever looked at your hand, you notice there's this big old muscle right next to your thumb. Why does that matter? Well, it makes us dexterous. It makes us be able to manipulate things. That's cool, but it's especially cool because we're bipedal as well. So we stand upright, which means we can actually have these free hands to do all kinds of cool stuff, including throw things. We're really good at throwing things like no other animal, which then that's a pretty good skill to have when you're hunting and doing other kinds of stuff. We can carry stuff for long distances. One of the fun kind of human distinctives that came to my attention recently, uh, first reading one of Joe anthropologist Joe Henrik's book, was we're endurance athletes like no other animal which is weird because we think of ourselves as pretty slow and feeble compared to lots of mammals. We can't beat our dog in a foot race. Oh, wait. Yes, we can if it's longer than two kilometers.
0: Huh.
1: <laughs> <laughs> We're good at keep keeping going because we don't overheat the way that other animals do.
0: Oh, interesting. We
1: sweat a lot. We efficiently cool ourselves. So humans are actually endurance champions, which so is kind in, of interesting. In the
0: savannas of Africa, which is, you know, a lot of – evolutionary psychology conversations lead back to the savannas of Africa because basically all the humans were there for quite a while. It sure Uh, looks that way. The people who uh, eventually became humans, right? And I guess the early humans, the homo sapiens. So in the savannas, how could a human get a gazelle, right? You can't, the gazelle is faster than you, but can you run 10 miles at a medium pace to where the gazelle tires out and collapses and then boom, you just spirit. That's
1: exactly the idea is humans can run down members of the antelope family like gazelles if they're patient and if they're smart about it. Uh, and in fact, these kinds of hunting techniques have been, you know, uh, Navajos and others in the North America have used these same techniques because yeah we can outrun especially under hot conditions we can outrun these other animals they just get exhausted and tired and then ends up just stopping and then you hit it with a rock right. and you win
0: and this is long before you have horses you're not on horseback or anything you're just this is nope. just a human being with some rocks nearby
1: yeah and part of that is our strange physiology we're upright stance changes actually the pressure on our lungs. It enables this interesting long and efficient stride that is scalable in the sense that we don't have uh, gears. A horse has about four gears. uh, If you think of it that way, it's kind of got a walk, a trot, a canter, a full-on gallop, or something roughly like that. If you can catch a horse in between gears, or you can sort of run at it and then slow down and then run at it and slow down, you can exhaust it because it's just inefficient in between gears, whereas humans, pretty much the same efficiency no matter how fast we're going. And so there are all kinds of interesting techniques that look like they're part of being a human. And those are not even the ones that are necessarily about our big brains. But becoming upright also then changes the ability, well, and the endurance running kind of things. All of these things weave together in some cool patterns that we're just starting to understand. One of those is a, a smaller gut. We don't have a big, well, okay, some of us have big old guts.
0: but I mean Speak for yourself, Justin.
1: <laughs> we actually have a really small gut compared to a lot of other animals, even chimpanzees. And that's an important observation because it suggests a, um, an externalizing of our digestive system. That is, we can afford a small gut because we have been able to chop food and cook food and so we digest it outside of our bodies instead of inside our bodies And we've become able to access higher quality kinds of foods, as they'd say. So really good fats and animal proteins. So fishing and hunting probably actually led to us growing big brains and small guts. Small gut means you can spend more of your energy building a big brain instead of investing it in building a big gut. So a cow, really big gut, little brain for such a big animal. We've gone the other direction. Big brains, little
0: guts. So you Um, just kind of made the connection that I was going to try and make next, which is all this stuff we're talking about that seems unrelated about our stride and our endurance running, it all leads to we can have bigger brains. We can support bigger, more biologically taxing brain organs.
1: Yeah, that's right. So you might think that this was a process that had really cool feedback mechanisms such that. You know, a little bit bigger brain and a little bit smaller gut and a little bit more upright allows you to do this and procure this kind of high quality protein food. And once you can do that, then there's more selective pressure to do more of it. And you can build bigger brains and smaller guts and more upright posture and better aim. And and suddenly you are this, you know, apex predator, even though you're not especially strong or especially fast. Hmm. But you do have an especially large brain. So scientists talk about this, an encephalization quotient, um, which is basically a measure of how big is the brain compared to the body mass. And they do some fancy math in here. But what it sort of boils down to is humans are like five times what you might expect for an animal of our size. And it's it's just so much bigger than anybody else. The only other animals that are even coming close in this regard – Tend to be aquatic mammals like the dolphin. It's pretty big. Yeah. Of course, this big brain is supported by water. It doesn't need to have it up on its neck. <laughs> um, right. And, and uh, chimpanzees, pretty big. But actually some clever birds like parrots, they've got pretty big brains. Yeah. But we're just no, – no other animal compares to the encephalization, as we say, that humans have. Massive brains – why those massive brains? What's the work that they're doing? Well, it looks like at least some of the lead hypotheses are a lot of this social stuff we've been talking about. Being really hyper social, interacting with each other in rich ways, learning a lot of information from each other. And those, those are related because we don't just sort of – treat each other as instruments to get information, we also relate to each other in terms of trust, cooperation, and so forth. And those feedback on each other. I have to know who I can learn from. Who's going to be a good source of information? Who can I trust? Who should I be teaching? Who's in my coalition? Who isn't in my coalition? That's a lot of social cognition, as we call it, that enables a high degree of learning and information flow as well that's relevant to my situation. And that's allowed our species to move out from that savanna we were talking about to pretty much every ecological niche on Earth. And the only other animals that have done that, full-blown animals, we'll leave bacteria aside, but are animals that have followed us to those places, (laughs) you know, like rats. (laughs) Right. (laughs) And body louse, you know, stuff like that.
0: (laughs) Right. (laughs) (laughs) So (laughs) you mentioned two things there in passing that I actually have questions for about each, which is hypersociality and then information absorption and passing that down. So anything else to say about hypersociality, just so that we recognize how social we are in comparison to other animals?
1: Yeah, oh, there's so much to be said here. Um, I'll try to be brief. A couple of things that look at least quantitatively different in humans, if not fully qualitatively different. Mm -hmm. One of those is that from early in our development, maybe nine months old, we're already jointly attending to uh, objects uh, with others. So in a way that we don't really see in other species, we seem to, you and I will both attend to the same thing and we will check back and forth to make sure we're paying attention to the same thing. And you might think that's a small trivial kind of Uh, ability, but it actually sets up a lot of other stuff. Because if I can sort of check to see that you and I are both paying attention to the same thing, then I can tell you something about it. I can tell you what it's called, which means then you can acquire language, for instance, really basic language, even naming and nouns and that sort of stuff seems to be facilitated by
0: this joint attention. One other thing about joint attention that strikes me, and I just, shortly before this airs my conversation with Mary Clements, from Fuller will air. And we talked about attachment theory and attachment to God as well. And that joint attention thing is one of the things they measure when they're measuring an infant's attachment to, uh, or a toddler or whatever to its caregiver is like you bring a toy in the kid sees the toy and then the kid looks to mom or whoever it is. Do you see that I've got this toy? And the mom says, I see that you've got the toy and that. So if we hadn't developed the joint attention, then we don't get attachment in the same way. At least we don't get the human version of it. There's obviously some attachment. Chimpanzees have attachment to their own parental figures as well, but there's a, there's maybe a robustness, a richness to the kind of attachment that we can have to each other. And this comes from the development of this hypersociality. And interestingly, there might be some theological consequences about that in terms of at a phenomenological, at an experiential level. For a human being, the kind of relationship I could have with God, if God exists, is also a consequence, perhaps, of the evolution of this hypersociality. That's kind of mind blowing.
1: It is, you know. Michael Tomasello is a leading developmental psychologist who has looked a lot at uh, these kinds of early developing dynamics in comparison with other species, and and he argues this ability to jointly attend to something is sort of a building block upon which then we can do something fancier, which is a little bit older, still in early, early childhood, but be able to form this idea of a we, that there's not just you and me and that we have different perspectives, but that there's a we and the two of us, even though we're doing different things can have a common goal or we can work together on something and we'll each gladly play our parts in that yeah. and he actually thinks that this ability also scaffolds the ability to imagine sort of a, a perspective with no perspective, an outsider's perspective because if I can recognize you and I are attending to the same thing and your perspective on it is different than my perspective. And then there's a third person who has another perspective and I can start building up all of these perspectives. Then I can kind of start imagining in an omni perspective. And wow. that then is the ability to think objectively in right. a sense, right? Or to have a God's eye perspective. Yeah.
0: Or to posit God. Right. Yeah.
1: Or a normative perspective even.
0: Yeah, okay. Like what this is is, how it ought to be or this is. Yeah. yeah.
1: What is the collective we's perspective on yeah. my behavior that I'm considering doing? Okay, now I can actually start inspecting my own behaviors and everything else. And I can have a conscience, as we would call it, right? All of this seems to be built out of this really interesting, fundamental little tweaks in our human nature, then that get ratcheted up during early development as a social animal.
0: Yeah, so obviously there's more to talk about with sociality, but let's move on for the sake of time. So this sociality is, is linked to... Something that you spent a lot of time in your lecture on about cultural evolution, which is information absorption, that basically we just blow other species out of the water in terms of our ability to absorb information and then pass that information on. Basically learning and teaching, education, right? Why is that so important and how do we know that it's so much stronger than other species?
1: Right. It, this is so important because when you're a kind of animal that we are, which means an animal that is constantly moving around, has gone into new places, uh, new ecological niches, that's omnivorous, eats lots of different kinds of things, you become dependent on local knowledge for how to solve problems, right? What's good to eat here? What do I do here if the rains don't come for a few months? Where do I get water? How do I solve that problem? Uh, Many of the food sources that we've managed to exploit, you know, animals and stuff, well, we've got hunting techniques. Well, where do you learn that from? That's not coded in your DNA or something like that. Or how do I prepare basic foods? So, I mean, we often think about, oh, hunter-gatherers, it's a pretty simple life, pick up an acorn and eat it. No, you've just poisoned yourself. Okay. But people do eat acorns. Well, how do you eat acorns? There's actually a pretty complex process of how to prepare an acorn so that it doesn't just poison you because of its heavy tannins, right? You've got to boil those off and so forth and so on. Well, where did that come from? Well, that's cumulative cultural knowledge that then has to be transmitted with a high degree of fidelity. So our ability to exploit that sort of informational niche then also helps us to move into more and more local ecologies and so forth, to be able to have this really broad kind of ability to eat things, to make clothing, different kinds of shelters, handle different types of climates. All right. All of that is due to this sort of information sharing and use. And we need that to be fairly stable. So Kevin Leyland has really sort of hammered the idea of high fidelity transmission of information. We often, especially Americans, I think we're really sort of proud of our heritage of innovation. You know, and it's innovation and being super smart that solves problems. Well, kind of, but Leyland and Joe Henrick, who have already mentioned, both of them have from different perspectives have arrived at the same place, which is that actually none of that helps much. And computer models suggest it doesn't help nearly as much as you'd think. What you really need is to be able to share reliable information with a high degree of fidelity that stabilizes the crazy hairbrain stuff that some people could come up with and innovations that are going to lead to disaster,
0: but gives you a base camp to build upon so you can keep going up. So to to make a culturally possibly insensitive version of this, we think we should all be Americans, but maybe we should be Korean. <laughs> we should well, be Kia and Hyundai just just getting that thing right and getting that cost down And it's more – it's becoming more and more reliable as opposed to Tesla, we're going to invent the new thing.
1: Uh, Okay, I think I follow your metaphor. (laughs) I don't think I'm going to
0: share in it. Um, Okay, Go ahead.
1: (laughs) But the idea is that it turns out that it's really handy, being the kind of animal we are, to be able to pass on this information in a highly reliable kind of way. But to do that, we need gadgets for transmitting information reliably. Yeah. Language is one of those gadgets for sure. Right. But so is teaching, okay? And we do, the jargon is we alloparent. <laughs> that is, lots of different people invest in kids, not just their parents, a much higher degree than we see in other species. And part of that alloparenting is teaching. We actually tolerate other people's kids. I mean, go to a park sometime. If a little kid walks up to you with something in their hand, they don't know how to work, and they say, how does this work? The average adult doesn't go, go away, kid. You're bothering me. Yeah, you're not my kid. Get out of here. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And say, oh, let me help you with that. Okay, great. Or if a little kid walks up to you and says, what's that? You don't go, not my kid, not my problem, and walk away. You you tell them. Well, that's actually kind of strange animal behavior in some respects. Because we really do just, I mean, it's strange in two levels. One is we're actually investing in kids that we don't even know. Let yeah. alone you know, just not mine. Not, we don't even know. We're actually investing to a certain degree. But we're also just giving information. We're not telling them what to do. We're just giving them information. That's a really strange thing. Other animals communicate with each other. Like they'll give us, like again, chimpanzees or monkeys of various sorts. They'll have different calls for different predators. Like here's my snake call, which basically signals everyone, hey, There's get out snake. of the trees. There's yeah. a snake. Or jaguar call. Oh, no, sorry. The jaguar, you get out of the trees. The snake, you go up into the trees. Anyway, Whichever you know, one they're different is, yeah. calls. But what they do is they trigger a behavioral routine like we can do with our dogs. Fetch, you know, roll over, sit up. But what we don't do with our dogs, and most – it doesn't look like other species do, is say, you know, that prickly pear over there seems to be a shade of fuchsia. Okay. Right. Uh Or interestingly, you know, if you were to eat that at some point, you you would need to remove the little, you know, the prickles and stuff and get down to that nice, soft, juicy middle. Thanks for that.
0: But I have a snack
1: bar in my hand. Yeah, that was just in case for a future date. Okay,
0: we're just give information away, right? This podcast is an example of just sharing information that may or may not be useful to people (laughs) depending on (laughs) what they think is useful or is in fact useful, right?
1: But yes, but building up, the point is, I'm being a little silly, but the point is building up this huge information base seems to be a part of the secret of our success, and it's part of what makes us really smart. We solve new problems because we see all of these other examples. We've got this huge knowledge base to build upon, to pull things together. We don't invent anything from scratch.
0: So to wrap up this first half, then we're going to take a break and we're going to come back and start into the sort of theological application slowly at first. But one way that I've sort of thought about cultural evolution is that is what takes over when biological evolution is no longer the defining change agent, we might say, of our development. So we – tell me if this is right. We biologically evolve to a certain point and then like basically without any of this cultural stuff because our brains are not big enough yet, uh, we we don't have – I'm sure there's not like an exact – time that you could sort of say, here's where culture starts or whatever. But basically the story is one of eventually, like human beings are not evolving biologically anymore, be- partly because uh, there are no distinct populations that could have genetic changes passed down separate from each other. We all interbreed all over the world basically now with maybe a f- very few tribal exceptions or something like that. But also the way that we change and the way that our, even our psychology changes is more through this cultural accretion over time and not actually our genes uh, randomly mutating. Am I getting that right?
1: Yeah, you're in the right neighborhood. We would say that uh, we're, it seems unlikely that we are, are going to continue to speciate okay, or change species. Are we evolving in some respect? Probably. It's hard to know exactly, but we sure don't seem to be genetically changing in really massive kind of ways anymore at least not in ways that parallel the massive changes in behaviors and information that we have. None of this sort of cultural uh, accumulation and the massive changes that we're seeing in our world today over even the last 100 years and even the last 30 years, that's not because of rapid gene changes. So you're right about that. It seems like something very different has taken over
0: I promise there's a new one coming in the next week or so, but the most recent patron exclusive episode is still the one where I talk about the song Foolish by the Christian pop-punk band, at least at the time, MXPX. It is a song that I woke up one morning realizing that it encapsulated so much of my evangelical faith at that time in my life. And I thought it would be fun to kind of listen through that song and dissect the lyrics and talk about how I thought of it then, how I think of it now, on each of these things that are sort of touched on in that song. And this is for patrons of the show only. Uh, it starts at five bucks a month. Patreon.com slash Dan Koch or YouHavePermissionPod.com. Click Become a Patron. Uh, this is the way to get involved um, in terms of more involved in the community of the show because there's a Facebook group that people post on pretty much daily. Uh, really awesome, supportive place. And then also because... Uh, you get these uh, bonus exclusive episodes. So here is a clip from that MXPX episode. Some people say I'll just pass briefly over the very easy dad joke that a 23-year-old singer in a punk band may indeed not have a ton to say, but the real meat uh, for me comes in the last two lines. Some people say that it's foolish to believe in what we cannot see, so we're deceived. There are a few threads here. First, it reminds me of the evangelical persecution complex that is in full force today, but also was when I was growing up. In the year 2000, I looked this up, only 9% of Americans were religiously unaffiliated. By the way, that number is about 14% today. Now, maybe some of these 9% were frontman of MXPX, Mike Herrera's friends. So on a personal level, this song and this line might make perfect sense. He's maybe had these conversations with friends of his that think he's foolish for being a Christian. But for me, it resonated at a cultural level, mostly because none of my friends did not share my faith basically none of them. At this point in my life, I went to youth group twice a week. I attended a Christian high school. No one in my actual life was telling me that it was foolish to believe in things we cannot see. Even the punk bands that my band would play with were mostly composed of other Christian kids who loved MXPX and Slick Shoes and Five Iron Frenzy. So I don't know. I mean, a lot of them went to public school and probably had secular friends and stuff. I had a handful maybe, but very little. So. I was, however, enculturated into this persecution complex. Now, this is something I've done a little bit of research on as an adult, and sociologists Christian Smith and Michael O. Emerson, previous You Have Permission guest, by the way, argue in their book, Divided by Faith, that evangelicals have always had a split relationship with the dominant cosmopolitan American culture. On the one hand, they are suspicious of it. And that, because that's where all the atheists are, that's where the bands whose satanic lyrics might, uh, you know, ruin their children. On the other hand, evangelicals want to be accepted by that dominant culture. And that's why they set up institutions of higher learning, like Fuller Seminary and Wheaton College, to compete in that world of ideas. So that's what I think of when I hear that first verse. If you'd like to hear that, Or have access to all the previous patron-only exclusive episodes, sign up patreon.com slash Dan Coke or you have permissionpod.com and click Become a Patron. All right, back to my chat with Justin Barrett. So in starting this theological aspect of the conversation, I want to start with one of the simplest bits I picked up when you lectured on this, and that's about deception. And now we're starting to think about sin a little bit. Is deception unique to humans, or the way that humans are able to deceive each other?
1: Uh, humans do seem to have some abilities to deceive that seem unlikely in other animals. We have reports that it is not uncommon in chimpanzees to do things like, if I've got you know some prize food that the uh, dominant chimpanzee, I'm a subordinate you know, uh, chimpanzee, and the dominant chimpanzee really likes, I don't know, I've got some kind of food that the dominant really likes, um, I might hide it from the dominant. Or if, suppose you are a subordinate chimpanzee, and you want to uh, spend some quality time with the dominant's favorite female, you might want to make sure you're behind a rock or something so that the dominant can't see you. Now, I don't necessarily call that deception. It's just sort of hard
0: to tell. Right. But those
1: are our best examples, it seems, in chimpanzees of the uh, they seem to have some sense that at least if the dominance line of sight is such that it makes contact with something that it wants and I've got, I could get in trouble.
0: Yeah, but it could be coded as just like a certain kind of avoidance behavior, right? Like
1: it could be, it it could
0: could be. be. Whereas
1: it it might be smarter than that, but it could be just a behavioral thing. And we see similar types of things in really young kids, but it does look like by the time kids are about three, they're doing something different and it's maybe younger than that. But certainly by the time most kids are three, they have figured out that you, well, three or four, they've figured out that you can have beliefs or at least percepts, you know, uh, Yeah. yeah. Uh, perceptive information that could be false or misleading. And then they can manipulate that information to their advantage. So if a two-year-old has taken a cookie from the cookie jar and they hide it behind their back, you say, hey, do you have a cookie? And they've got it behind their back and they say, no, it's probably that they, it's a behavioral routine, that they've figured out that if you your eyes don't lock on the cookie, that maybe they're going to get away with something. Hmm. But a four-year-old is almost surely lying. Right. That is they are saying something that they think might give you a false belief and therefore them a cookie. Yep. So that's when I think honest to goodness deception starts kicking in is probably around age 4, maybe a little younger than that in some, you know, really good sinners, but um <laughs> by 4 or 5 I think we've all got that one down. That is but that's a gift in some ways, right? We've got this extra ability to sort of take the perspective of someone else, which put to good use means I can do things like I can help you with things in ways you don't even know I should help. This is sometimes called paternalistic helping or paternalistic cooperation where in experiments, for instance, you might be reaching for something that you can't get that you need, you think you need. Uh, Well, a two-year-old in a chimpanzee raised by humans will give you the thing you're reaching for. A three-year-old will give you the thing you really need, not the thing you're reaching for necessarily. No. They'll go, oh, he needs something to solve this problem I can see. I'm going to give him what he really needs, not what he thinks he wants.
0: Two, yeah, two initial thoughts there. Number one is the way that Jesus talks in the Gospels, not answering oftentimes the question that he's asked but answering the question that he should have been it's asked. real question. It's a real, real question. question. Right. Also, I'm training to be a psychologist, and this is what therapists do. You don't go into therapy on day one knowing exactly what you need to fix. The job of a therapist is to, uh, to have some expertise, at least at the beginning, and sort of help you get to where you need to go, and you don't know where you need to go when you start therapy. It's a higher level of help.
1: Well, yeah, and and when we're helping each other, when we're parenting, when we're just being a good friend, we don't always give just what the other wants. We give what we know they should want to solve the problem that they have or whatever it is. Well, that is a higher level kind of thing that requires me to take to do this sort of multiple perspective taking and comparing those perspectives and coming up with a solution. But that same cognitive ability allows me to see, ah, your different perspective is something I can manipulate for my favor as
0: well. Yeah. The way that I sort of theologically think about these capacities, which immediately leads to conversations about sin, right? So uh, humans can sin in a way that a salmon can't, it would certainly appear. Um, Sure
1: seems that way.
0: Seems like it. It's always both. So a capacity comes about and it can be used for good or ill. And basically the way that I think of it is like a big funneling So the higher up the funnel, that's closer to humanity. And we have the widest funnel. We can do tremendous good with our powers and we can do tremendous evil with our powers. And a salmon just cannot do much good or much evil at all. And a chimpanzee uh, or a dog can do a bit more evil, a bit more, you know, good. Like they can certainly make some choices. They can obey or disobey. They can, you know, wreak some havoc. But man, you get to human being. Now you've got the real capacities, and that's basically a biological way of thinking or a developmental way of thinking about the capacity to sin and also to love, and to love God and to obey God. Yeah, I think
1: I'm with you on about half of that. Okay, let's hear uh, your take. Because <laughs> I think you're right that certain kinds of uh, strengths or capacities open up more possibility for goods and more possibilities for ills. You know, it's sort of that it's the, the Spider-Man principle, right?
0: I mean, you know, I love I love the Spider-Man principle, by the way, that's my or Catholic social teaching. The greater resources you have, the greater your responsibility to use those for people who don't. It's it's basically great power, great responsibility. Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. Because it can cut kind of either way, right? You could be a super villain or a superhero. It, the more super you are. And so that part, I'm completely with you. I wonder, though, if it's really as gradual a curve in some respects. Hmm. It may be that there's some important inflection points in that to be a full-on moral being, at least in the way we usually think of it in humans, you might have to get to a certain level, and then there's a a phase shift of some sort. Hmm. Maybe, yeah. So what if it's the case that – for instance, I need to have some kind of awareness of the goodness or badness of my decision before I'm morally culpable of it. If that's right, then the cognitive capacity to have that awareness is an inflection point.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So I would, that's right. So it's somewhere around three or four, maybe, or something like that, if we're talking about the ability to deceive. But even then, it's like, yeah, but a four-year-old, so a four-year-old can know that they're doing the wrong thing. They know what mom and dad have said about cookies. They want one anyway. But they don't know like the real consequences of their actions yet. To me, you, it just I I can't I have to see it as a ramp. But I yeah, I, I, I take your I, point.
1: I'm guess I'm thinking about not not necessarily in childhood, but in other species. Oh, I actually, okay. I think you know, dogs can misbehave, but that just means they don't do what we wanted them to do. Sure. Yeah. But I don't think a dog can actually be
0: it can actually sin. Yeah, I guess I agree. I what I'm if I were to draw the funnel, it stays very, very thin for a very long time. And, it, goes, woo, and <laughs> it radically widens at human beings. But there is some kind of a curve there in terms of capacities, mainly not because of other animals, but mainly more because of the development eventually of Homo sapiens. So there are fully formed well proto humans that have Less of an ability morally than I have, but they obviously had some because they're kind of human. They're certainly more human than any apes that we're aware of now. That's the funnel is more about what leads to humanity than it is plotting all the organisms in the world on it.
1: That could be, and that's 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 a fun speculation to have because, um. You know it's early days we don't we don 't know what some of these sort of proto humans yeah. might have been like It may have been if some of the cultural evolution people are right and this, there's been this really rapid runaway due to cultural selection pressures, then being this sort of fully cognizant able to imagine an external perspective by which I'm going to judge my own actions so now I have a conscience that could have come about only in the last 500,000 years or maybe 200,000 years or maybe even more recent, which we have 200,000, we're already at anatomically modern humans.
0: Well, yeah, but even we don't know. We really don't know. Yeah. I still Um, find that fascinating because you still have basically 195,000 years of anatomically modern humans before any of the sort of religious and cultural artifacts that we know about. The next thing I want to talk about, which is related to this in a theological way, is there is a connection between size of the prefrontal cortex, which is our, the most modern, you know, part of our brain, the last to develop or get big anyway. It is where we make decisions. You know, it's like a lot of our executive function is there. So there's a connection between that and an increasing ability to suffer. What do we know about that? scientifically?
1: Yeah. Um, it seems that our ability to suffer and by suffering, I, let's be clear, suffering just doesn't, it isn't just, I feel pain. It's, it's different that than pain. I, yeah, yeah I want to make that distinction. The reason to believe, I mean, if all, if what pain is, is some kind of aversive stimuli, then pretty much any animal has that. If, So let's let that be pain. Suffering is the – and I am consciously aware of this and it's bothering me (laughs) in kind of an existential sense. That's the real suffering. You might think in between those two endpoints, there's something like experienced pain, pain that I'm aware of. But then there's pain that I'm aware of that doesn't really even bother me. I get this – when I used to play basketball, I'm kind of getting too old for that now because I always hurt uh, when I do it. But love to play basketball. Honestly, part of the fun of basketball was some of the pain. Hmm. I mean, it's a contact sport. And, but it didn't bother me that I was hurting while playing. It bothered me more the next day when I couldn't get out of bed. Yeah. So suffering is the, I'm experiencing something like pain, and it really is starting to bother me. Well, that does seem to be some, uh, an experience that's facilitated by this prefrontal Cortex, the part of the new brain that's sort of in front of our ears, right behind our eyes, gives us giant foreheads compared to everything else. And there's some reason to think that that's where the action is in some respects because of the old practice of giving lobotomies. So it used to be a psychiatric practice for really deeply disturbed people. Uh, I mean, it's really terrible sounding now, but basically they'd stick um, basically an ice pick into the eye socket and kind of just move it back and forth until the midbrain, which is sending these emotion signals to the prefrontal cortex, that pathway got severed. And what patients of lobotomies would often report is that they could still experience pain. And other of these negative, really deep sort of basic emotion types of stuff, but it just didn't bother them the same way. Yeah, I feel pain, but it doesn't bother me. That's intriguing because it really suggests that we can at least conceptually and and anatomically almost separate what are the systems that subserve that experience of pain versus the – the experience of suffering. And so suffering then seems to be something that may have developed with this prefrontal cortex development that we have in this neo, you know, the the, the big forebrain that we have in human beings. And so then it raises a real issue of whether or not species who don't have this big kind of brain actually suffer. They may feel pain. They may be conscious of pain on a certain level. Um, arguably, they don't have the layers of consciousness that we have. The same right. depth of awareness. They
0: wouldn't even necessarily have the lobotomized humans' ability to be aware of their pain with language and all of that. Correct. They would even have less than the lobotomized human had in terms of awareness. Even less
1: than that. That's yeah. right. I mean, quite possibly. Um, but, you know, this is one of those problems that we can't really solve. We don't we can't know become for sure. a
0: fish, right?
1: Yeah, I can't become a fish. But at least this gives us some reason to think a fish probably doesn't suffer. It may feel pain on a certain level. Um, I actually doubt that it is conscious of pain. I doubt a fish has consciousness. (laughs) Um, Mm -hmm. But that's because it has almost no brain at all. Do I think mammals probably have some conscious awareness of pain? Maybe. I think maybe a fair number of them probably do. But do they suffer? that's just not as clear that they've actually got the brain structures that subserve functioning yeah so, not suffering sorry
0: so two theological thoughts about this the first is this is kind of good news i think for the problem of natural evil so the problem of problem of evil there's a few different variations of it one aspect of the problem of evil is that people can be cruel uh, and immoral and, and maybe god wouldn't allow creatures that could be cruel But then you might say, well, maybe God gives them free will. Then a rejoinder is, well, what about natural evil? So some of the natural evil this is not going to touch. Like a tsunami ruins a bunch of human lives or or kills them, causes them to suffer. That's still going to be a problem. But there is another problem of like billions of years of animal pain. And possibly you might think all these animals just living only so that they will suffer these horrendous deaths. What was the point of that? How was that glorifying? How was that good? Well, if you think they don't really suffer, they feel some pain, uh, but mostly they got to live and then eventually they had enough pain, uh, you know, they had the appropriate amount of pain that accompanied their death, that that might not be such a big problem.
1: Yeah, uh, I find that when I go down this road, some people think that makes me a monster. So... (laughs) (laughs) For those who are listening to think that, I don't think I'm a monster in this regard. I just, I wonder, because I don't know what to think about this, but it sure looks like it may be the case that as our brain, in the course of evolution, and and different animals have different brains, we can't treat all animals as falling on the same continuum. That's an important thing to to point out, so that's an important qualification. But it does look like there is some kind of correspondence between the ability to have what we think of as executive function, uh, self-awareness, self-consciousness, and the ability to suffer. That those two seem to be subserved by similar kinds of brain structures that they may have evolved together. And the implication of that would be that animals that don't have that kind of awareness, self-consciousness – self-control even, may also not have the same ability to suffer. If that's right, then it's possible, it seems to me, to build a case that one's suffering is proportionate with one's ability to actually be a willful agent and be
0: culpable in some respect. Um, That those two do seem to at least roughly correlate. Yeah, it it does feel like based on our earlier conversation, though, that there might, there still might be a troublesome gap where organisms are becoming more aware, sort of like a two or three year old is becoming more aware, uh, a protohuman or something, and could suffer quite a bit. But
1: you didn't just call two year olds protohuman. No, I'm saying,
0: you... or for example,
1: oh, or for a proto,
0: a protohuman or something, <laughs> where you know they are getting those things, and they're okay. So here's maybe a a way to nail this home: a low IQ schizophrenic. This is the new problem of evil for me as I'm studying psychology. This is sort of the new face of the problem of evil is like one of the things about schizophrenia is the higher IQ you have, the better your outcomes tend to be. An example of this is from the movie A Beautiful Mind with Russell Crowe, where at the kind of climax of the film, he recognizes that the girl he always sees in his hallucinations doesn't get any older. And he has a high, he's such a smart guy. He's able to go, oh, she can't be real because she doesn't get older. If you have a lower IQ, that's not available to you. And there's just these really tragic cases of people. So we might think that there's still going to be problems like that. But I do think it's still promising for the issue in general that, yeah, if those two things are correlated, at least fairly closely, then that's going to do a lot of the work there in kind of dealing with that issue.
1: Yeah, the one important thing to remember about correlations, too, though, is uh, a correlation can disappear if you reduce the range of the distribution enough, right? So if we're on the human tail of the distribution, we may have no meaningful correlation. If we're looking at that it, from fish to humans and tried to line them up on a continuum, right. that's where we start seeing a correlation. So you could be, I think you're right. It doesn't probably address the kind of problem of evil you're talking about, but it may contribute to a solution to what's sometimes called the evolutionary problem of evil.
0: Yeah. Okay. And then the second thought I have is really one of the ways we might talk about the kind of suffering that we're talking about is actually the way that Buddha talked about suffering. So one of the five noble truths of Buddhism is that life is suffering. I think it's number one. And what I think that my understanding of Buddha is talking about is not just pain, But it's attachment, right? Suffering, suffering involves a mental state of wanting something and not having it. So this is why in meditation, you are supposed to work on your attachments. The idea being if you want all these things, you're aware that you're not getting them. That is suffering. This is a part of life in parentheses for human beings. And you work on that attachment and you lower the suffering. I mean, say what you want about other salient uh, religious truths or not of Buddhism, this seems not only right on, but basically what we're talking about. Would you agree?
1: Uh, Well, I don't know it as well as you do, but it does seem like we're in the same neighborhood for sure. Uh, Definitely that idea of being really consciously self-aware of what my desires are and that sort of getting under my skin as it were and bothering me. That also seems like a pretty – I mean, humans might be the only ones who can really do that. If we're not the only ones, we're probably in a very small group of animals that can do that kind of thing because that's – it's fairly sophisticated, right? And it does put our species in a weird kind of place that if we don't manage those desires in some way, if we don't have another framework that
0: gets us outside of them, yeah, life is suffering. I mean, take a Christian version, cast your cares upon the Lord, right? Take those attachments in in Buddhist language and give them to God, like try and drop them in prayer. It's all talking about the same module, it seems to me. Uh, Next, now the rest of these theological questions are, they're not going to flow quite as piece to piece to piece as our first half of our conversation did, Um, but they're just various things that have come up for me in thinking about this. So the next one is xenophobia.
1: Xenophobia, okay. which is
0: complicated. Right. So we've just been talking about we're pro social. We get you You mentioned you didn't say tribe or clan. You said part of my
1: Probably in group it, or something.
0: Yeah, whatever. Some my group, my whatever unit of people. This is really strong. Xenophobia is a very natural thing for human beings to feel. You know, you're in the grocery store. All of a sudden you're hearing languages that you don't understand from people who moved into your neighborhood. Your first reaction for most people is not sheer joy at the variety of languages that now surround you. It is like, whoa, what's changed? This might not be safe. And that's, I'm not judging anybody. That's just what happens to humans. So this is one area where a natural consequence of all of this flourishing, basically this sort of biological ecological niche flourishing and brain activity, flourishing brain size, also has this kind of dark consequence that at least the Bible, Jesus, Paul's letters, at least especially the New Testament, seems very strongly against xenophobia. But xenophobia is adaptive. It helps people survive because if they do trust people from other groups, then they are more likely to be deceived and conquered from within uh, or whatever. So I'm wondering how you think about that issue.
1: Yeah, I think you're right. I mean, part of being a hypersocial kind of animal that's so dependent on high quality information is that we need mechanisms for policing our group boundaries. Who's in my in-group and who isn't? Who's sort of part of my tribe, my people? We've got it, – it, it seems we have lots of natural mechanisms for that we attend to certain things like language you mentioned language in your illustration and that's certainly a big one and it's not just full on languages but even accent um word choices yeah It's not for no reason that young people like to develop their own jargon and slang that old people don't understand. It marks who's in and who isn't.
0: Interesting. Yeah, I never thought about that.
1: I mean, that's tripping on one of those things, too. Why? Because in ancestral conditions, you would have learned your language early in life. And that can vary fairly dramatically just, you know, know, 10 miles away over that next mountain range. So... Eating habits is another one of these because our tastes in food, right, get pretty well established fairly early weird, in life.
0: Yeah, weird smells are a trigger of xenophobia, frankly. Yeah, absolutely they are.
1: And you're right, all of that is natural. That doesn't mean good. Yeah. <laughs> it's just it, naturalistic it just,
0: fallacy is odd fallacy, right?
1: Yep. It doesn't mean it's a good thing, but it does seem to be the way that our minds naturally go. But I so guess
0: okay, yeah. Go ahead. Sorry. Well, I
1: was going to say so, we, but then what follows is, you know, well, what do you do about it? There are good reasons for actually privileging kind of uh, interactions with people in your group. You can take better care of them. So here's some positive reasons why you might want to be xenophobic. I'm <laughs> I'm not advocating, sure, but here yeah, yeah. here's where you might go with it. You might say, well, look, I can better care for people that I speak the same language, understand their needs, their background, and so forth, true. I can benefit more from spending time and learning from them because they know my situation, where I'm from, and so forth, okay, yeah, that kind of, by and large, is right. But does it follow that we should mistreat people from outside the group? Well, no, actually, I don't think that follows, and that's the part where even people working on the science of this, I think there's some slippage. There's an assumption that if you are showing preferential deference or submission or loyalty or even you know, prosociality toward your in-group, you must therefore mistreat the out-group. And I don't know that that follows. It may follow in some situations, but I don't think it always follows. Let's start with a smaller in-group, families. Yeah. Just because I treat my kids especially well – doesn't mean I'm beating your kids. It doesn't mean I'm mistreating your kids, even if I don't treat
0: them as well as I treat my kids. So there's a couple ways to go with that. The first is, as I'm sure you know, there is the out-group homogeneity bias, which is, you know, when I consider people of my group, I think of us as all nuanced and we're so – we have such variety within our ranks. But people out there, all atheists are the same or all whatever – Oh, Chinese immigrants are like this, you know, or whatever. That's a a natural structure we, a cognitive structure we're aware of. And then the other thought is, we are now at a point where structurally in society, taking care of my own kids can be problematic. the The easiest example for me to think of is public school funding. You know, nobody like the public school is already inequitable because it's based in most states anyway on property taxes which are, if you go, if you live in a good neighborhood, which means you had enough money to move there, your school is well-funded. If you live in a shitty neighborhood, your school is poorly funded. And, uh, one, I don't have, uh, kids yet, uh, soon. First one coming soon. And when they are school age, I am excited to try this. I know how it's going to go, but I'm going to try it nonetheless. I'm going to put forward, a resolution that we raise money for our own kids' school at a dollar-to-dollar ratio that we give it to a poor school in South Seattle. And I know how that's going to go. It's not going to go over well. People are not going to be excited about that. But that is – in that sense, in a a highly competitive urban environment, that is harming someone else's kids. So I understand what you're saying. It doesn't necessarily mean that I'm not beating my neighbor's kids just because I'm loving my kids extra – But in some areas, it is a trade-off.
1: When there's a zero-sum kind of situation, for sure, there are going to be trade-offs. Right. Yeah, that's right. And those are the ones that I think we should be especially sensitive to uh, about when are those situations that we are inclined to mistreat the outgroup. But you've also pointed to the theology of it that you know, especially New Testament Christianity seems to have plenty of resources to push back against – Being too chummy about your in-group and not welcoming the out-group. In fact, that's one of the things that I really appreciate about Christianity is that it's got theological resources for saying, if you are a member of the church, if you're a Christian, a Christ follower, part of your job is actually... Part of your identity is to be really good to the out group, (laughs) Um, to non-Christians. We're not supposed to be an exclusive club. We're supposed to be an ever-expanding club that's ever-welcoming more and more people, um, regardless of their other kinds of backgrounds. Well, that's a very different kind of in-group, an in-group that is dedicated to the benefit of the out group and that's yeah. hard to pull off. It's hard to pull off. It I yeah. think it does push against an aspect of our nature and from, you know, a Christian theological perspective, we might say part of our sin nature is what it's pushing against.
0: Yeah, I I think it gives us I don't want to get I'm not going to get political here. I'm not turning this into politics. That's not where the conversation is going to head. But for example, the most personally disconcerting and like depressing example of this for me is evangelical opposition to refugees in the current moment because it's tied to Trump or maybe Trump is because of it or however you want to do that causation, right? Um, This both gives us some reason why people are naturally like that and why if a leader is going to really double down on language like that, it might be quite effective. Also though, We can look back at the Gospels and the New Testament letters and Acts and say, hey, there is our tradition is actually opposed to that kind of thing. So it is going to be powerful. Like you said, we have theological language for it. It's sin nature. Uh, We have psychological language for it. It has been adaptive, and it's a powerful structure of our cognitive machinery. Also, is does not equal ought, and as Christians following Christ, we are called—and the way, By the way, just you haven't heard me talk about this on the show. I choose refugees because it's as far as I can tell, it's pretty unambiguous and and it should be really uncontroversial from a Christian perspective. It's not the same as, you know, criminal justice reform or even legal immigration levels of millions and millions of people. We're talking about 50,000 people who need it more than anybody else who are the safest of all immigrants who pose the least threat. Uh, it's. That That's what I That's why I'm choosing refugees and not more complicated policy questions. So I guess I am both heartened by the topic around this. Um, it helps me a little bit because that one is just a. that's a very depressing one for me because it it just reminds me how unefficacious uh, religious claims can be sometimes against just the structures of our psychology that they are fighting against, like in this case.
1: Yeah, and I think one of the things that could help us then is to, to get to know our psychology in this regard better so that we know what is it that we're up against? How do we push back against our own natural tendencies in this regard? How do we safeguard ourselves? Yeah. And how do we motivate ourselves? How do we reframe the situations as not, for instance, an in-group, out-group thing, but a uh, how do we care for other people in the the following kinds of ways. And how do we recreate how we define what an in-group and
0: out-group is? Or and maybe actually, even before that, how do we recognize that the news coverage that we love so dearly is hijacking our cognitive structures to think about this as in-group, out-group? I mean, that's oh, like a- logically prior maybe.
1: Oh, absolutely. Um, well, and all of these other reasoning biases, we have confirmation bias. We right. love stuff that sort of, Already confirms what we're already thinking. It's so hard to move away from that stuff. That's why there will never. About
0: it. That's why there will never be uh, in 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 an age where we have the kind of uh, access to content and lack of uh, maybe for good for good lack of sort of governmental rules around that content. A centrist moderate news source will never be able to compete with MSNBC and Democracy Now! and Young Turks or Fox News and Breitbart and Drudge Report, right? Because it just doesn't give us the the drugs. It doesn't give us the drug hit.
1: (laughs) But you know, this actually takes us back to uh, something that we started with about why people are afraid of evolutionary psychology. Hmm. And uh, uh, because there's this assumption that evolutionary psychology somehow supports this idea that, no, we are about competing with each other, that certain races are superior to others or whatever it is. That ain't evolutionary psychology though. And in fact, one of the reasons why I think people from a Christian perspective should actually give evolutionary psychology a try is because actually evolutionary psychology typically says, deep down, we're the same animal we were 200,000 years ago. Right. That is, we all are the same folks. And everything else is window dressing, but there's something deeply human about us. We can affirm something about human nature that's deep and it transcends cultural conditions. Yeah. That's one of the things I really like about it because that resonates, it seems to me, with a Christian view of, and we're all God's children, and deep down, we're all the same. We're all held accountable to God. we he demands the same stuff of us. Ultimately he's fair with us. He loves us all and he wants us all to win. Um, he wants that abundant life for all of us.
0: You know, that's interesting. Uh, it makes me think about like, you know, the, the current ancestry DNA craze of which my wife and I are participants. I'm quite Scandinavian. Uh, <laughs> but you know, what's interesting about that is, so they'll give you this map or whatever, But really, that map is totally depends on where you put the slider in terms of what year you're talking about. And my my guess is it's roughly turn of the 20th century, right? So around 1900, where were people living? Something like that. I'm sure they have ways of sort of making sure that people don't get American, because there were some people living in America in 1900, of course. But what's interesting is evolutionary psychology, though it gets uh, blamed for stuff like eugenics and and sort of social Darwinism, which takes modern distinctions between people groups and tries to like it's talking about us two hundred thousand years ago, and if you slid the slider back on everyone's twenty three and me profile, it would say one hundred percent African <laughs> or ninety six percent African because a couple people you know some people have a little bit more Neanderthal or whatever. I mean, it's basically everybody is African if you go far back enough. Before any of the kind of modern uh, distinctions that we the, of what we call race or ethnicity, right? Ethnicity being a real thing, race being a constructed thing. But like, if you're talking about evolutionary psych, you're pre all of that stuff.
1: That's right. Most of what most of what evolutionary psychologists pay attention to, you're right. That it's going to push you way back before any of these contemporary distinctions and that's why i think it's got a bum rap in this regard and why we shouldn't be afraid of it for those reasons we might be more afraid of it for sexism reasons it's easier yeah. for it to say well hey it's kind of natural for men to be this ish and women to be this ish
0: yes i think that's that, yeah the that's, sex yeah. sexism is probably more of a relevant worry than racism when it comes to but that's the just use, to the say
1: that evolutionary psychology like just affirms that there really are sexes Um, What you do with that and how you value that is something entirely different.
0: Yeah. And also, to be clear, the discussion of the differences between the biological sexes, they're always on some kind of bell curve. Uh, It's never just there other than chromosome or whatever. There's a couple things that are binary and almost everything else is on a bell curve. That's not the same thing as saying biological sex equals gender. There's still a conversation that has to be had about whether those things are always the same, whether they are usually the same, whether that's completely societally uh, constructed. I don't lean towards the latter explanation, but it is at least theoretically possible, even if you recognize the biological differences. Yep. 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 So let me just end here with one more sort of application question. What do you think? uh, Actually, there's there's two. Um, The first is, what do you think that sort of theologically and scientifically minded Christians ought to take from this field of study and associated fields of study? Like how, if it if it should modulate our own theologies, our confidence level about certain claims versus other claims, just at, at more of a cognitive belief theology level, what do you think this does for a Christian who's paying the right kind of attention to it?
1: Yeah, I think that what this... What evolutionary psychology and in some ways its interactions with cultural evolution should tell us, those of us in the church, is uh, look, um, humans have some kind of nature. It uh, is importantly culturally conditioned, but there's something that brings us all together that includes how we think about our characteristic ways of thinking and solving certain kinds of problems. And if that's right, then that's going to color all kinds of areas that are of concern to us. We've been talking about sin and it might give us resources for reexamining. What is sin? How does it seem to grab a hold of us? And why is
0: it so hard to shake sometimes? Um, what- Su- a, quick, a quick subset of that. Uh, it, it might have, a, it might give us problems for original sin in the Augustinian sense of there was an original sin by a person or two people that then spread to us genealogically, that's not going to be good. But what about the theological richness of original sin, sin nature, or ancestral sin, as Orthodox call it, right? Like, there's really, there's so much to think about there, given the science. Absolutely.
1: That's right. There's so much to think about in terms of what is sin nature, but also on the positive side, what is our God-given endowment for having the kind of relationship with him that we've been called to. Our capacity to love God and love others. And what are the the resources that we have? How do they develop in someone's lifetime? How can we better, I don't know, guard and fortify those developmental resources so that we can grow into those kind of people that can love God and love others well. Knowing our psychology, how it develops Uh, And especially in relationship to different kinds of environmental conditions gives us resources for doing that better, it seems to me. And so those would be some reasons why I think paying attention
0: to this area of science could be really valuable to the church. Well, and that leads to my final question, which is just uh, less cognitive and more the affective or emotional or ritualistic side of that question for for sort of scientifically minded Christians who take this stuff seriously – How should it change the way we think about more concrete faith practices like personal prayer, corporate worship and liturgy, group singing, you know, what's a slightly different or more nuanced or better way of understanding individual and collective practice?
1: Yeah, I guess uh, that's a great question. And I don't know that I have lots of specifics that I could spit out, but one Big theme, anyway, is that if we are such deeply social creatures, as it seems that we are, then that has got to be taken very seriously in our forms of corporate worship and even in the way that we think, because we think together. We don't think by ourselves. Um, And our thinking, our way of sharing information and stuff is interactive. It's um, and it's collective and it's aimed at certain kinds of problems and so forth. And so. It calls into question a strictly kind of uh, teach-and-listen kind of format that is so popular in churches because that's individualistic. And that's just not how humans normally learn. It stresses the importance of certain kinds of collective rituals, things that we do together, and so, and including some things we do well. Corporate singing probably is a really great thing to do. Yeah, But you got to get everybody singing. They need to participate. So, <laughs> um And if you can't do it through singing, find another mechanism. Doing those sort of coordinated, collaborative, synchronized kinds of activities, they pull communities of people together. And that's important for us then to learn and grow in those communities
0: as well. We're leading a small group at our house right now. And recently, my favorite thing about it has just been we take two minutes of silence at the end of sort of sharing about our lives. And not everybody identifies as Christian. So we don't pray so I came up with the silence thing, but now that's my favorite part of the night is just like, we're all silent together. And that's probably not quite as powerful as maybe doing something, uh, with content together, but it does do something. And it, I feel more connected to the people in that room at the end of that two minutes.
1: That's interesting. That'd be fun to research. That uh, would be. be. Yeah. Cause in a society like this, in which we're sort of constantly bombarded with stuff and we're so busy. Maybe it's the absence of that, that somehow is actually evoking these sort of bonding hormones. Uh, That's that's a fascinating idea.
0: Oh, maybe I should study that. Um, (laughs) But I, okay. One, one last thing came to mind uh, before we're totally out of time here. Um, So there are the scenes multiple times in the gospel gospels where Jesus says entire households are saved. This goes really against sort of the way that we have tended to think in the last 500 years about individual salvation, uh, maybe maybe the last 1700 years. I'm not interested so much in the salvation thing because as a universalist, I, don't, I think everybody is saved anyway in that, in that strict sense. But what I'm interested in is might there be something in that way that we think about how our groups, our families, our households are brought Toward or away from Christ, toward or away from God as a group, not as individuals. Like, is there an evolutionary psych or cultural evolution angle on this corporate salvation that we see in Acts and in the Gospels?
1: Yeah. The. This emphasis on cultural evolution has really started to show us just how important the dynamics, the social dynamics of groups are on us, that they scaffold our individual thinking and that we're doing that to each other all the time, back and forth. We think better and differently together than we do by ourselves. We collaborate in our thinking and our learning. And so if even one person in that group changes – they're going to have an impact on everyone else, especially in these really tight-knit groups like family structures. So it's not implausible to think in terms of just how contagious certain revolutions in one's thinking could be for the rest of
0: that household. Especially if you're direct contact with the person of Jesus, right? Yeah. Then it's especially, it's even easier to think of that. Well, Justin, what a great conversation, man. I'm so jacked up right now. I feel great. I can face the day. I loved this conversation. Thank you for your time and for all your work. You bet. Thanks for having me. Huge thank you to Justin for having this conversation with me and to Fuller Seminary's Star Office for putting together this Theo Psych seminar that I got to take part in back in July at Fuller in Pasadena. There is a link to their website, TheoPsych.com, in the show notes. I think that's all I got to say. Um, thank you to Laura Kondaragian for editing my episode with Justin. Great work. And if you want to become a patron, patreon.com slash Dan Koch, or youhavepermissionpod.com and click become a patron. And we do have scholarships available. So email me if you want to know about that or email me about anything else. Youhavepermissionpodcast at gmail.com. All of those are in the notes as well. See you guys next week.